thank you for being here. It's good to have the woods with us tonight. And uh, as Pastor was saying, what a tremendous blessing that is to this church, uh, to have someone come from this congregation and serve the Lord with their life. And we were talking a little bit before the service, Pastor Wood, uh, along with pastoring all those years, uh, directed a camp over in Ohio, Camp Chautauqua. It's in Ohio, right? Then it will be Indiana, but kind of the churches in Indiana, Ohio, and right in that uh, southern Midwestern area would come to that camp, and for 40 years directed that camp, and uh, think of the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of young people that were influenced right there to serve the Lord, got saved, and that all comes back to your account, and uh, what a blessing that is, and an encouragement to keep on keeping on, because these children in your congregation today will grow up, and uh, they'll go somewhere to serve the Lord and you'll have a part in their life. And so don't underestimate what God is doing here. You say, well, I think the Lord's coming back. We won't have to worry about all that. You know, probably 70 years ago when this church started, people thought that too, uh, that the Lord was coming back. But here we are 71 years later and uh, still trying to be faithful. So uh, thank you for your faithfulness and thank you, congregation, for being here tonight. It's a joy to see you in church on a Monday night. Let's go to Isaiah chapter six tonight, the book of Isaiah chapter 6. I think this passage will be familiar to many of us tonight, and uh, there is much on the surface here in this text that is good for us, and I think that we can learn from it for sure. There's also a little underlying message, I believe, here that I want to try to expose tonight that I think can be an encouragement to us. Isaiah chapter 6 and starting with verse 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the doors moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth, and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thy iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. There will be seasons in your life where you will wonder, Where's God? Where is He? He'll seem vacant. He'll seem to have left his throne in your life. It'll seem like God is absent. Your prayers are not getting through. There'll be seasons. Perhaps you're in one of those seasons even right now. Perhaps you've been in one. But all of us will come to times in our life where we'll wonder, where's God? I was a junior in college and I had been dating a young lady that I'd met my freshman year, and 
we'd gotten to know each other. We weren't really serious, I don't suppose, but we, we were making a good friendship, and certainly it was progressing toward bigger and better things, we thought, and, and yet she was a year and a half ahead of me in school and, and would finish uh, before I would, and she was training to be an educator, training to be a teacher, and was uh, just excited about that and, and uh, had a great vision to teach uh, in a Christian school, and God had called me to preach, and I was heading more toward evangelism and those things, and it just seemed like our lives were kind of going different directions. She was graduating in January of my junior year and would, had taken a, a position at a school in Indiana and was going to be teaching sixth grade there and very excited about that. Great opportunity, a wonderful church to serve in. And, and I still had a year and a half of school and all these kinds of things. And it just seemed like God couldn't possibly be in our relationship. We were, we were kind of going different directions. And so we had talked about it a great deal. And one day after lunch, we had another talk, and we decided to end our relationship. And I went from that talk to my afternoon class. I had an upper-level speech class. It was a class of maybe about 15 or so, a close-knit class. We were all speech minors and got along well, always had a lot of fun in that afternoon class. But that day I walked in that room and chose a seat over by the window alone by myself because I couldn't stop crying. Now I'm not a crier, but that day I couldn't stop crying. All of a sudden there was this hole, there was this, there was this vacancy in my heart and, and, and I, I couldn't get a hold of my emotions and the teacher, he's trying to teach something, looking at me like, what's wrong with you? And I remember sitting there thinking, God, where are you? Where are you? It was 1976, I was scheduled to preach three revival meetings in three different churches in the city of Los Angeles, California. I had never been to California, much less L.A., and I got in my Volkswagen and began to make my way across country. Back in those days, there were no interstate highways, 55 miles an hour. I began to think they had lied to me in geography class. I didn't think the Pacific Ocean existed. No air conditioning in that little car, and I made my way across that, those plains and finally got to California after days of driving and, and uh, found the church. In those days, we didn't have GPS. We had maps. For those of you that are young, those are pieces of paper with lines on them to show you where the roads are. And I'm trying to find this church in La Puente, California, right in the heart of the city of L.A. And, and I finally found the church. And it was a Saturday morning, drove in the parking lot. And there was a guy working on some flower beds up close to the church, kind of freshening things up there. And I got out of my car and walked over to him, introduced myself to him. And I found out he was the pastor. And after we made our introduction, he said, what can I do for you? I said, well, I'm here to hold a revival. He said, I didn't know anything about that. Here I was in the city of L.A. I had nowhere to go for six days. I had no credit card. I had no cell phone. I had $36 in my pocket. I said, well, thank you, sir. Got back in my car. I drove down that street in front of the church about another six, eight, maybe ten blocks, and I found a, a motel. I affectionately call it a flea bag hotel. It was actually one of three. It looked like the better of the three. 
I walked in the lobby and the girl behind the counter, she said, what can I do for you? I said, I, I, I need a room. She said, no problem. I said, well, there, there is a little problem. I probably need to talk to the manager. And she called for the manager and he came out and I, he said, what can I do for you? I said, well, I, I'd like to get a room. And he said, hey, we got rooms, lots of rooms. He said, uh, I said we can help you. I said, well, I, I have a problem. I, I need to be here for six nights and I only have $36. He looked at me and he, he reached under the counter and he pulled out a ring with a whole bunch of keys on it. He said, follow me. We went out a back door into a courtyard area. It really wasn't a courtyard. It was a, a place where the junk collected, a bunch of old beds and dressers and just old furniture and you know, grass all grown up. It was kind of in between as this hotel had kind of a, a U shape. And, and we walked across that courtyard and he took one of those keys and opened an iron door and we pushed it back and he said, uh, it's not much. Walked inside, it was a, a tile floor. There was a military cot with a mattress on it. There was a sink. There was a toilet. There was a, uh, a shower. And there was a metal folding chair. He said, it's all yours. Six bucks a night. I gave him my $36. And he closed the door. Now, I remember as he closed the door, I saw something out of my left peripheral, and I, I looked up above the door. There was a little shelf, and there was a small 13-inch black and white television on that shelf. Now, I remember thinking to myself, I don't know if I said it out loud, but I said, well, at least I have a TV. And I went over, and I reached up, and I, I turned that TV on, and it was showing snow. <laughs> These white lines across a black background. And I thought, I don't want to watch snow. I'm from Wisconsin. I've seen enough snow. I'm in L.A. So I turned the channel, and the next channel was the exact same program. I went all the way around those 13 channels, and they were all the same network. Static. And I remember sitting on the edge of that bed. I said, God, where are you? It was 1983. We were holding a revival in the western side of Chicago, a town called Warrenville. The church there was a new church plant. The pastor was a church planter, and he would usually go to a place, stay about three years, plant a church, get it up and going, and then call a pastor, and he would move on. And we had been with him a couple of other places in these church plants, and here he was now in Warrenville and asked us to come. They were meeting in an elementary school and starting this church, and they had rented a big farmhouse kind of on the edge of Warrenville there, three stories, and we backed our trailer. We were traveling as a family then. I had a wife and two kids, and we backed our trailer into that driveway there by his house and got set up. And uh, that meeting... It was like Murphy's Law. If it could go wrong, it went wrong. I mean, just everything went wrong. We'd get to the school. The janitor wouldn't show up. We'd have to break in the building just to have the meeting. It was just like that every day. Something like that would happen to just discourage. And the pastor, he had a wonderful wife and seven children, and, and, and they were hurting. I mean, this thing just wasn't going well. It just wasn't off to a great start, and the revival didn't seem to be much of a help. And about Wednesday, I said to my wife, I said, you know, pastor's hurting. Uh, the kids are discouraged. His wife's discouraged. And I said, I, I don't know what the love offering will be this week. Probably not much, but the Lord's been kind of nudging me that whatever it is, we should just give it to the pastor and his family. I think he needs it worse than we do. 
And she said, you know, the Lord's been telling me the same thing. And I always hated it when my wife agreed with me about stuff like that, you know. I said, well, let's pray about it. And we prayed that Wednesday and Thursday and Friday. And we decided on Friday that's what we would do. Well, Friday night came again, a lot of problems with the service, not a large crowd at all. But afterwards, he said, come on, let's go back to the house. We want to have a little fellowship. And uh, we, we got back to his house and went inside. They had some popcorn and some Kool-Aid, and we fellowshiped with he and his family. And finally, he reached in his pocket, and he pulled out the infamous envelope, you know, and said something like, wish it could be more, we did our best, something like that. And, and for the first time in my life before or since, I opened that envelope in the, in the presence of the pastor. And I pulled out that check, and I'll never forget, it was $250. Now, I'm going to tell you something. In 1983, that was a lot of money. And that was a very large love offering for a week of meetings. I had no idea where they would have gotten that kind of money. But I already decided what I was going to do. I turned it over. I took my pen and I started signing the back. And I said, Pastor, the Lord would like us to give this to you and your family. Well, he refused. He tried to push it back in my pocket. He said, no, no, we're going to do what the Lord told us to do. And, and he started crying. His wife started crying. All seven kids started crying. And we got out of there. I mean, no <laughs> sense hanging around that stuff. You know, when you obey the Lord, you feel good about it. I mean, you do what God tells you to do. You feel good about it. We went to sleep, slept like a rock, got up the next morning, hooked up that 16,000-pound trailer to our truck, and we headed to St. James, Minnesota. And I had fuel on board that I thought was enough to get there, but we got to La Crosse, Wisconsin. And I looked down, and both of my gas tanks were on empty. And I still had over 100 miles to go. And I said, Lord, I'm out of gas. And the Lord said, well, get some. I said, well, that's easy for you to say. I don't have any money. I gave all my money to the pastor in Chicago. I still didn't have a credit card. I didn't have any, any way to get gas. I said, Lord, I, I don't have any money. He said, you got money, get gas. I said, Lord, I don't have any money. He said, get gas, get off now, get gas. Now, I had heard preachers tell stories about pulling in a gas station, filling their tank up, and somebody else paying for it. I didn't have that kind of faith. <laughs> I was operating on a cash basis. <laughs> and I said, Lord, I don't have any money. And the Lord said, you've got money. And he reminded me in the trailer, we had bought this, this little yellow bucket for the kids to play in the sand with it. came with some little spades and things, and they had played with it. Well, the handle had broke, but the kids wanted to keep the bucket. And so we cleaned it all up, we put it in the trailer, and they wanted to throw our pennies in there. Whenever we got pennies, whenever we'd come in, hey, got any pennies? And we'd throw those pennies in that bucket. And it was about three-quarters full. And the Lord said, use that. I pulled into a gas station in La Crosse, Wisconsin, and bought 40 gallons of gas with pennies. I'll never forget the guy behind the glass counter counting them two by two on top of that glass counter and the expression on his face. Nor will I ever forget the expression on the seven people standing behind me waiting to buy their gas. But the Lord miraculously got us to St. James. It was just amazing. We got to this little church, the Manor Baptist Church, on the outskirts of town near the fairgrounds, and little clapboard white building, kind of one of those postcard-looking buildings, kind of an old congregation. In fact, the youngest person in the church was 65 years old. They had about 13 people. The pastor was working at a lumber yard 50 hours a week and just trying to build something there. And 
we met Saturday night, talked about Sunday services, and came in Sunday, did Sunday school and morning service, and afterwards no one said anything about lunch. And I thought, well, they'll feed us tonight. We went out to the trailer and had a few canned goods in there. We threw those together and got a little something to eat. And I thought, they'll feed us tonight. Sunday night came. We had the service, and the pastor, after it was over, he said, well, i got to get up at 4 o'clock tomorrow. I'll see you tomorrow night at 7. We went to bed hungry. I remember that next morning, I always like to wash my vehicles down on Monday morning, get all that road grime off and keep them looking good. And I hooked up a hose and I had my soap and everything out. And I was washing those vehicles. And I said, Lord, where are you? I said, I, I know I did the right thing in Chicago. I know I did what you wanted me to do. And you miraculously got us here. But Lord, where are you now? I mean, I don't mind fasting this week. I, I can do that, but I got a wife and two kids in there. And the Bible says, if I don't take care of them, I've denied the faith. I'm worse than an infidel. God, where are you? There'll be seasons in your life where you'll wonder, where's God? Now, we know from this book that he never leaves us nor forsakes us. But as we just heard a minute ago in that song, we're prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. We're prone to become lukewarm. We're, we're prone to drift away, aren't we? And all of a sudden, we look around, and God seems to be nowhere in sight. God seems to have vacated his throne, and our prayers are going unanswered, and we wonder, Lord, where are you? Now, I think Isaiah is at this point. The king has died. Isaiah is a prophet, and he's looking at his country. There's no leadership uh, they're vulnerable to the enemy. And Isaiah is saying, Lord, you know, what do we do now? I'm your spokesman. I'm supposed to have answers. I'm supposed to be able to give leadership. But Lord, I don't know what to do here. The king has died and, and, and we don't have a plan. Lord, where are you? And I believe in kind of an, a subliminal way in this passage, Isaiah shows us three locations where you can always find God. The first is the holy place. As Isaiah gets this vision of heaven, he sees the throne of God and these, these angelic beings, these seraphims they're called. Each one had six wings. With twain they covered their face. With twain they covered their feet. And with twain they did fly. And the Bible says there in verse 4 that one of these seraphims cried unto the others, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. When God seems missing, when God seems vacant from the throne, the way we find him is to go back to the holy place. The word holy characterizes everything that God is. When we speak about God being a loving God, his love is a holy love. When we speak of a God being a just God, he has a holy justice. When we speak of God being righteous, his, holy, his righteousness is a holy righteousness. His anger is a holy anger. He has given us the Holy Spirit to understand the Holy Bible. Everything about God is characterized by the word holy. So when God seems missing, when God seems absent, we've got to go back to the holy place. Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like unto thee, glorious in holiness? 
The psalmist said, worship toward thy holy hill, for the Lord our God is holy. John said in chapter 15 of Revelation in verse 4, Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name, for thou only art holy. Now, let's remind ourselves that holy and unholy cannot coexist. And when you and I allow unholy things to come into our life, it separates us from God because righteousness and unrighteousness cannot coexist. So if we want God's presence, we want God's power, we want God's provision, we want God's protection, we've got to stay in the holy place. Way back in the book of Leviticus, God told the nation Israel, I, the, I am the Lord that bringeth you out of the land of Egypt to be your God, ye shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, and the church at Corinth struggled with this issue. They struggled with the worldliness around them. They struggled with the temptations to sin. And we even see in the church where Paul had to deal with some, some pretty, pretty intricate sins that had crept in. And Paul writes there in 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 1, having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves of all filthiness of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the sight of God. Perfecting holiness. How hard are we working at perfecting holiness? Well, the choir sounded good tonight, didn't it? You know why? Because they practiced. They've been practicing. They're perfecting those songs. These ladies that play the piano, they just walk up here tonight and say, I think I'll play the piano. Well, they've been working on that for a while. They're perfecting those skills. There, there's some guys going to play football later tonight. They don't just walk on the field and say, hey, give me a helmet. No, they, they've been working at this for a while, Right? I mean, if you're going to do anything in life successfully or skillfully, you've got to perfect it. You've got to practice it, whether it's business, whether it's sports, whether it's music. No matter what it is in life, there's a, a perfecting process. And God says we're to, we're to be perfecting holiness in the sight of God. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to your former lust and your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy, for I am holy. I know people talk about, well, we, we have liberty, we have grace, we can, you know, we're saved, we can live however we want to. But the Bible talks about grace that saves us in Titus 2 and verse 11. And then in verse 12 he says, teaching us, what does this grace teach us that we've received? Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, godly in this present world you know that is the same in the first century it is in the 21st century this present world people say well brother Gatch, times have changed and people don't live like they did way back when but if god wanted us to live differently than he wrote in this book he'd write us a new book god says in this present day we're to live a life of holiness hebrews 12 and verse 14 says follow peace and holiness without which no man can see the Lord. So when our lives are not in that holy place, when we're allowing sin and we're allowing the pollution of the world to come into our life, God says, you're not going to see me. I'm going to seem absent. There's going to be a fog between you and me. 
There's going to be a marine layer here that you can't see through. I'm going to seem like I'm absent. I'm going to seem missing when you're not in the holy place. So when God seems missing, the first location to go back to is the holy place. But notice, secondly, the humble place. It's interesting Isaiah's response as he sees this holy God on his throne. His response in verse 5 was, Woe is me, I'm undone. I've had the privilege of traveling to a lot of churches over these years. And as you do that, you meet a lot of wonderful Christians. And I'm not just talking about pastors and missionaries and evangelists, though there are many wonderful Christians among pastors and missionaries and evangelists and their families. But I'm talking about just folks in the church, just wonderful Christians. But I found a common thread in every Christian that I would consider to be a great Christian. And I know I'm not the judge. But when I meet somebody that I think that person loves the Lord, that person is excited about the Lord, that person is serving the Lord faithfully, when I meet somebody like that, I find a common thread with others that are the same. And that common thread is humility. One of the verses in the Bible that's becoming one of my favorites is Isaiah 66 and verse 2, where in part it says, to this man will I look. Now, I don't know about you, but I need God to look my way. Because I can't do what I'm supposed to do without God. Without his favor, without his blessing, I can't be the Christian I'm supposed to be. I can't be the husband I'm supposed to be, the dad I'm supposed to be, the grandfather I'm supposed to be. I, I can't be the preacher I'm supposed to be, the staff member I'm supposed to be. I, I can't do anything without him because without him I can do nothing. So I need him to look my way. And he says, to this man will I look even to him that is of a poor and a contrite spirit and that trembleth at my word. The humble place. God doesn't hang around his abominations. These six things that the Lord hate. These seven are an abomination unto him. And the first on the list, a proud look. God doesn't hang around what he hates. Everyone that is proud in heart is an abomination unto the Lord. Uh, Psalm 38, 138, verse 6, it says, Though the Lord be high, yeah, I guess he's pretty high. He's, he's as high as you can go. He's God. He's the creator of the universe. Though the Lord be high, yet hath he respect unto the lowly. Now just think about that for a minute. If, if I asked one of these musicians, somebody that, that plays the piano or sings or whatever, and I said, who do you respect in the music world? Or if I asked a young athlete, somebody maybe in high school who's playing football, I said, who do you respect? If I asked a, a businessman that's starting up a, a new business and, and I said, who do you respect in the business world? People that would be asked that question in that situation would probably always point to somebody ahead of them, 
above them, somebody that's played the piano longer, taking more lessons, uh, 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 perfecting their skills. Uh, a high school athlete looks up to a college athlete. A college athlete looks up to a professional athlete, or uh, the professional athlete looks to the, the GOAT, you know, the guy that's the all-pro, the greatest of all time, whatever. Uh, a business, uh, they, they look at a business model that's been successful, that has a, a, a portfolio, whatever. They're, they're always looking up. Who's God look up to? Though the Lord be high, yet hath he respect unto the lowly, the humble place. Why? Because God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. A man's pride shall bring him low, but the humble, uh, uh, the honor shall uphold the humble in spirit. When I was uh, growing up as a kid, I used to hear the name evangelist Paul Levine. I'd never met him, never heard him preach, but I'd hear his name. Pastors would talk about him, other evangelists would talk about him. Paul Levine was an evangelist. And uh, he traveled and preached revivals, and, and uh, preachers would mention him from time to time and say wonderful things about his life and ministry. And, as I grew a little bit older, I learned more about him. Paul Levine was saved at the age of four. He was called to preach at the age of four. Don't ever underestimate what happens back in those rooms back there. His mother said that at the age of four, after he got saved and called to preach, Paul would come home on Sunday nights, and he would get out his little New Testament, and he'd jump up on top of the piano stool, and he'd start preaching. Paul Levine finished high school at age 15 and started traveling as a full-time evangelist. Couldn't drive a car. Had to walk. Take public transportation, hitchhike. But in full-time evangelism. Grew up in Iowa and began to travel all across Iowa and Minnesota, Wisconsin, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, that Midwestern area. By age 17, he had a full-time singer that traveled with him named Bob Finley. Bob Finley was completely blind. And Paul and Bob would play their mandolins and they would sing and preach God's word and travel all over the Midwest. If you go to any of those states I just mentioned a minute ago and go to any independent Baptist church and mention Paul Levine, you will meet somebody that was saved under Paul Levine's preaching. He had a radio program called Bible Echoes out of Waterloo, Iowa, preached the gospel every day. He had a, a track ministry called Bible Tracks Incorporated. It's still in existence. I was with the director of Bible Tracks last week in Raleigh, North Carolina. They have printed over 790 million tracks since 1934. I walked into a Flying J truck stop the other day, one of my favorite places. And I got gas, walked in to use the restroom, opened the stall door, and two tracks fell on the ground. One in English, one in Spanish, both printed by Bible tracks. Amazing ministry. Paul Levine. I heard about him. And I thought, man, I hope someday I get to meet Paul Levine. Well, in the spring of 1981, I was preaching revival in Danville, Illinois, at the Faith Baptist Church. And one day, a knock came on our trailer door. It was the church secretary. We still didn't have cell phones back then. Someone said recently, you know, it'd be great if somebody would invent a little cord that could hook onto your phone and then attach to the wall so we wouldn't lose it all the time. 
Uh, it's already been thought of. So whenever you got a phone call in those days, they had to come get you. So I went into the church and took the phone call, and it was Dr. Bill Rice III from the Bill Rice Ranch in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. I had never met Dr. Bill Rice III. I had heard his uncle John R. Rice preach. I had heard his uncle Joe B. Rice preach. I had heard his brother Bill Rice preach, and, or uh, uh, Pete Rice preach. I would heard Bill Rice III preach, but I would never met these guys. I, I knew about the sword of the Lord. I knew about the Bill Rice Ranch, but I had never met any of these people. He said, John, uh, I've heard about you. We've never met, but I'd like to invite you to come and preach a week of youth camp here at the Bill Rice Ranch in the summer of 1983, two years from now, if you could look at your calendar. Whoa, I about dropped the phone. I felt like I made the all-star team. And it wasn't preaching to those teenagers that I was excited about. What I was excited about was the fact that when Bill and Kathy Rice started the Bill Rice Ranch, they started it because they had a deaf daughter and they wanted to find a property where deaf people could hear the gospel in sign language. So they went outside of Murfreesboro, bought 1,500 acres, and they developed the Bill Rice Ranch. And the first youth week that they ever had, because there aren't enough deaf people to come every week to the ranch, and so they have some hearing weeks with youth and adults as well, and they had their first youth week in 1953. And the speaker was Paul Levine. And from 1953 until the middle 1990s, Paul Levine was the main speaker of every youth week at the Bill Rice Ranch for all those years running. Well, as the camp grew and more and more young people came, they, they added a second speaker to take some of the preaching load off of Dr. Levine, and Bill Rice III was asking me to be that second speaker. Man, I was going to get to meet Paul Levine. I couldn't wait for that meeting to come. It finally did, and I remember that first night I walked in a side door to the John R. Rice Auditorium. Now, I walked into that auditorium. There were 1,400 teenagers sitting there. 1,400. Not the counselors, not the staff, 1,400 teenagers in that building. But I didn't even look at them. I remember walking in thinking, I wonder if I'm going to meet Paul Levine tonight. I wasn't scheduled to preach. He was, but I thought, I wonder where he is. And I, I walked in, and before I could get a few steps, a man came over, held out his hand. He said, welcome to the ranch, Brother Getch. And he introduced himself as Bill Rice III. I'd never met him yet either. And we talked for a minute. He said, welcome to the ranch. He said, hey, I want you to meet Dr. Paul. Come on up, let's meet him. And I looked up and on the platform, there was nothing on the platform but the pulpit and one pew that was about 30 feet long stretching across the back of that, that, that platform. There was no one on the platform except for one guy sitting at the very end of that pew and he had his Bible open and he had a steno notebook out of, hanging out of the Bible and he had his pen and he's writing in this steno notebook. It was Paul Levine. I'd seen his picture by this time. I thought, that's him, that's him. And Dr. Bill said, come on up, come on up. I want you to introduce you to Paul Levine. We walked up and Dr. Bill said, Dr. Paul, this is John Getch. And, and Dr. Levine, he closed that Bible up and he stood up and he shook my hand. He said, Brother Getch, I'm so glad to meet you. I can't wait to hear you preach. I thought, hear me preach. I'm here to hear you preach. He said, here, sit by me, sit by me. Oh, wow. I sat down in that pew next to Paul Levine. He went back to writing in that book. And I, I tried to look, see what he was writing. I couldn't read his writing. The service started. They sang some songs. And pretty soon it was time for Dr. Bill to introduce Dr. Levine to preach that first service. And he got up and he said, now, teenagers, tonight we get to hear Dr. Paul. Dr. Paul has been preaching here since 1953. 
week after week, youth week after youth week. He said, Dr. Paul, how many sermons have you preached here at the ranch? Dr. Paul, he's still writing stuff in his steno notebook. He wasn't even listening. But he heard his name, his head kind of popped up, and he said, uh, 1,216. And Dr. Bill said, think of that, young people. 1,216 times this man that we get to hear tonight has preached to young people just like us, and he's going to preach. And Dr. Paul, he, he punched me in the ribs, and he said, I really don't know how many times I preached. He said, all I know is I ran out of sermons a long time ago. <laughs> that was Dr. Paul. Humble. One night a few years later, we were preaching together again there. and It was kind of a rough week. Kids weren't responding very much. And it was Thursday night. Dr. Paul was burdened. It was his turn to preach and I could tell on the platform he was just burdened in prayer as, he, as we went through the preliminaries. And finally, during the special number, he had that Bible open, that steno notebook. He's still making notes. And I just kind of touched him on the knee and I said, Dr. Paul, I'm praying for you. And he leaned into me. He said, oh, thanks, Brother Bill. He said, you know, people tell me to trust the Lord. Trust the Lord. I do. But I don't trust the devil. And it was things like that that began to shape my ministry. I think it was 1996. I was privileged to speak one session at what was called the Holiness Conference up in Menominee Falls, Wisconsin. At the Falls Baptist Church. Just did an afternoon session. It was a three-hour session. Everybody had to come to it. Terrible time to teach something for three hours right after lunch. Those preachers packed in there, and I tried to give them something for three hours. It was, it was quite interesting. But when I got done, I mean, I had done my best, and, but they were tired. It was toward the end of the conference, and they had one more evening service to go, and they were excited about the preachers that were coming in to preach that night. And I dismissed them, and boy, they went out the back to go get some dinner and come back. And Everybody was going out the back, and I gathered up my stuff and made my way off the platform. And I got one step down. As everybody was going out the back, there was one gentleman coming to the front. He had that Bible open, that steno notebook hanging out of it, a pen in his hand. He was hobbling from pew to pew, feeling his way. See, he was completely blind now. His wife was already in heaven. Cancer riddling his entire body. He would join his wife in just two more weeks. It was Paula Bean. I ran off that platform. I said, Dr. Paul, Dr. Paul, I didn't know you were here. You know what he said? He didn't say, hey, Brother Gedge, how you doing? He pointed that notebook. And he said, I missed letter E under point five. <laughs> what was letter E under point five? I looked at his notebook. He was writing these huge letters because he, he was legally blind. He could barely see. And I, I said, Dr. Paul, you don't, you don't need it. That guy had been preaching for decades. Yeah, I said, you don't need it. I'm thinking to myself, you're going to die in two weeks. Go over here and sit down and just wait, you know. <laughs> Tears began rolling down his face. He said, oh, Brother Gage, I want to know God better. I want to know the Bible more. What was letter E under point five? Humility. 
when God seems absent, you're back to the humble place. But there's one more. It's in verse 8. Then said I, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then said I, here am I, send me. If God seems absent, go to the harvest place. When God seems vacant from the throne, when your prayers don't seem to be answered, grab some tracks. Go pass them out. God will meet you there. Because God's all about the harvest. Call the church office. Pastor, is there anybody in the hospital I can go visit? Pastor, is there a shut-in I could go be a comfort to? Is there something I can help with? God is always in the harvest place. That, he's all about that. He came to seek and to save that which is lost. He's not willing that anybody perish, but all come to repentance. God is always in the harvest place. We've just come through Christmas, and I know your pastor has preached, no doubt, on the Christmas story, the birth of Christ, and it's wonderful every year to refresh our minds with those truths, such tremendous doctrine and the birth of Christ, the virgin birth, and his deity, all of those things. But then after a few chapters in the Gospels, the Bible kind of goes silent on the life of Christ until we get to about the year 30 in his life when he begins his public ministry. But there's one time between his birth and his ministry that we get a little glimpse. You remember it? He was 12. And his parents, earthly parents, Mary and Joseph, they went up to Jerusalem to a feast. And they traveled in a company of people, probably for lots of reasons, maybe safety, maybe accountability, maybe for fellowship, but they traveled in a group of people. They made their way up to Jerusalem. They took Jesus along. He's 12 years old. They get up there and they enjoy the feast, they enjoy the celebration, and then they started for home in this same company of people. And they got one day's journey, and all of a sudden they realized, we've lost God. How do you lose God? They lost him. Now, we don't get all the conversation there, but you kind of imagine it. Joseph says, Mary, have you seen Jesus? Uh, no, Joseph, not today. Uh, he was with you last time I saw him. Well, when was that, Joseph? Well, yesterday when we left Jerusalem. You haven't seen him since yesterday? Well, yeah, I thought he was with you. Well, where is he now? I, I don't know, Joseph. I, and, and they begin to ask, have you seen Jesus? Have you, have you seen Jesus? Have you seen Jesus? And they realize he's not there. So they hurry back. Remember where they found him? In the temple. 12-year-old boy. And he's asking and answering questions of the biblical scholars of the day. And he's teaching them the word of God. And again, all you have are words in the Bible. You have no emotion. You have to provide the emotion. So here are the words. Mary comes to Jesus there in the temple. And she says, son, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. Where hast thou been? <laughs> Those are the words. That's not the emotion, right? You ever lose your kid at Walmart? And you finally find, where have you been? Oh, I'm so glad you're safe. Oh, oh, I thought, you know, something terrible happened. That's probably what's going on here. And you remember what Jesus said to her? How is it that you sought me? Wist you not that I must be about my father's business? You should have known where I'd be. I 
be in the harvest place. I'd be ministering. Folks, when God seems absent, let's get back to the holy place. Is there something in your life that's separating you from God tonight called sin? Get back to the holy place. Has pride welled up because, well, I've been saved a while and I know some things and I don't need God quite as much? Oh, friend, get back to the humble place. And then let's not, even in, the, in, in light of this pandemic and all these restrictions and different things, let's not get out of the harvest place. There's a world that we've got to reach. By the way, that girl I broke up with that day, we've been married now almost 47 years. But you see, at that moment in my junior year, I wasn't ready for something as sacred as marriage. God had some purging to do in my life before I could ever enter into something of that stature. And that night in that hotel in L.A., six nights, that door never opened. No one ever came in. I never went out. I had nowhere to go. I had no money to spend. I knew absolutely no one in the city. I never ate a bite of food. Drank water out of the faucet, cupping my hand. And I've been in thousands of revival meetings since that one. But that was the greatest week of revival I've ever had. Because it was just me and God in the humble place. Because see, when I came out of college, I was ready to preach in the stadiums. Hey, where's the stadium with the tens of thousands of people? I'm ready. I got three messages. <laughs> God said, whoa, 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 whoa. We've got to go to the humble place first. And that Monday morning behind my trailer in St. James, all of a sudden a car pulled into the parking lot. It was a 1954 Ford, an old antique car. The guy behind the wheel was affectionately known as Tiny. He weighed over 400 pounds. He was not a member of Manor Baptist Church, but he had been in the service the night before with his wife and his two little girls. They lived 40 miles away. They'd come Sunday night to talk to my wife and I about what they should do. You see, there was no church in their town. This was the closest church to where they lived. And with a broken heart, they said, Brother Getch, we don't know what to do. It's killing us to drive all these miles with our little girls every service. But we don't have a church. We don't know anything about starting a church. We don't know if we should just drive and do the best we can. And my wife and I, we were just young. We didn't know what to tell them, but we cried with them and prayed with them and did the best we could to try to encourage them. He pulled out of that parking lot. He saw me behind my trailer and he rolled down his window and he said, Hey, Brother Gatch, you need any food? I thought, who pulls into a church parking lot and asks that question? And I kind of put my things down, went over to the car, and I said, what are you talking about? He said, do you need any food? I said, well, sure. He said, get in. I got in that 1954 Ford. We pulled out of the driveway, and we started driving that 40 miles to his house. I said, Tony, what's this about? He said, I work for the Jolly Green Giant. I'm looking at him thinking, are you the mascot? Or, you know, <laughs> guy's over 400 pounds. 
I didn't realize it at that moment, but St. James is located in a very fertile agricultural valley of southern western Minnesota. There are thousands of acres of vegetable farms. Del Monte, Jolly Green Giant, they all have processing plants, and this man was an executive with Jolly Green Giant. He said, Brother Gatch, I came out to get in my car to go to work this morning, and in my garage I've got four freezers for food. We mispackage stuff, we mislabel stuff, and I bring it home, throw it in these freezers. And he said, it hit me, I wonder if that preacher needs something to eat. Now I'm sitting there thinking, Lord, this is, this is great. This is great. But seriously, green beans? I mean, I, I'm hungry, but broccoli? And lima beans? I mean, Lord, couldn't you speak to a beef farmer or somebody? <laughs> we got to that house. He, he pulled up that garage door, and there were those four freezers. He started flipping up those lids. And I didn't know it, but Jolly Green Giant made lasagna. They made Swiss steak. He started loading that old 54 Ford full of box after box after food. We got back to the church. We had to borrow the church freezer, the pastor's freezer. By Friday night, we were giving away free food. Anybody would just come and listen to me preach for five minutes. You know what God said? He said, son, you just keep ministering to people on the front row of churches. I can feed you. So does God seem absent? Does he seem missing tonight? He's there. He's never left. But we've moved away from the holy place and away from the humble place and away from the harvest place. And so God seems absent. But all we have to do is draw nigh to God and he'll draw nigh to us. Let's bow for prayer. Lord, thank you for this passage of scripture and it has so many proper interpretations and applications but lord beneath the surface there's this one as well and lord i pray that you'd help us tonight we live in a day where it can seem like where in the world is god why is he letting this happen why all this problem and chaos and confusion and destruction and disease and Lord where are you when are you going to show up and fix it and so Lord tonight help us as your people to focus again on you in that holy place in the humble place in the harvest place and may you draw us back to those locations where you are and may we enjoy that wonderful sweet fellowship with you once again I pray if there's someone listening to me tonight that doesn't know you as Savior, that, Lord, you'll draw them to yourself and they'll be wonderfully saved tonight. Help us to help them. As our heads are bowed and eyes are closed, I'm going to ask the music to begin. And as it does, let's stand quietly if you can. As we stand, if you want to make that place there where you are an altar, that's fine. You want to come to this physical altar here at the front, that's fine as well. Brother Kenny's going to sing a verse of this song. And as he does, if God's spoken to you, maybe it's time to, to change location. And sometimes it helps to, to kneel. Sometimes it helps to come to an altar and kind of in a, a real way change locations to indicate what we're doing in our heart as well. Getting back to that holy place, that humble place, that harvest place. And so as Brother Kenny's